This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain... Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Sarah Rigby, online assistant at BBC Science Focus magazine. With me today, I have editor Dan Bennett. Hello. Managing Editor Alice Lipscomb-Southwell. Hello. And Commissioning Editor Jason Goodyear. Hiya. We're going to tell you all about the January issue of the magazine, which is on sale now. Why don't we start with Dan? Dan, what are you going to tell us about today? Well, so I've got a health story, but not the the kind you're sort of used to hearing in January, because, I mean, honestly, who's got time and energy for uh, resolutions? Um, this this was something we found really fascinating um, about a really, really big and sort of huge amount of work that's gone into this uh, new study that was published at the end of last year. And it was a group of scientists who were essentially interested in the seasons, but not the kind that we, I suppose, familiar with. Uh, not, you know, summer, autumn, winter. Uh, or in England, as I like to think of it, as rain, 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 and it's too hot. Uh, <laughs> but they, they were interested in whether the human body might have its own seasons. Um, and, and that would vary depending on where, where you were in the world. So to set out whether our bodies have their own rhythm, um, these researchers followed 
a whole group of people in California. Um, I believe it was uh, around 100 of them. And over four years, uh, 105 volunteers, I would say, over four years, uh, they sampled their blood, their uh, poo samples, uh, taking measurements of the kind of molecules that were floating around in their blood and body, uh, measurements of what kind of microbes were populating their microbiome, uh, looking at what was in their blood, nose and guts. Um, and at the same time, they were also taking measurements of what the weather was around them, like uh, what it was like, so the climate. Using things like weather data uh, and airborne pollen counts to see whether there was any link between the environment and what was going in, on in their bodies. Um, so it's a huge effort done over four years. And actually, they've started to analyse the data. And in fact, they found that there's two key signals, at least, that they might be able to identify as sort of biological seasons. Um, uh, one comes in December, uh, which you might expect, because effectively that's when infection's around. And they found that the molecules and the markers related to immune system responses um, were in, in abundance in the blood at that time. So it makes sense. The body's probably preparing itself for uh, infectious microorganisms. And then the other peak was actually in April rather than summer. Um, and they're not sure what that's to do with, but they suspect it might have something to do with airborne pollen. So they suspect that with that entering our bodies around springtime, that the body is sort of in a rhythm to pre prepare a response to that sort of inv these invasive uh, pollen particles. Um, so, so it's quite interesting in that, that they found that the human body had seasons and that those differ from our traditional seasons. But I suppose why we were interested in it is, is it's a move towards a really interesting area of uh, health health research called multiomics. Uh, so that's the idea that you take as many measurements of as many parameters if, as you can and find out how the human body changes over the course of a year. Because, of course, when you go to a doctor, you're ill and you say, oh, I'm ill. Uh, I feel, feel like I've got a temperature. They compare your temperature to the baseline human temperature and say, yep, you're ill. Or maybe they take your cholesterol and say, yep, that's higher than, than the bands that we think are normal. But in reality, your body changes throughout the year. In winter, we know that cholesterol is higher because we're basically indoors sitting around and we're, you know, perhaps <laughs> um, putting on our winter weight. And perhaps that's in natural bounds compared to what happens in summer. Uh, and so they're starting to see all these different markers that actually the human body ebbs and flows. And if we don't take special care and attention to that, we may be either missing crucial diagnoses when people come in to see doctors because, um, you know, the measurements might be within certain bands, but actually for them, it's out of the usual. I mean, particularly when it comes to sex, um, we know that certain hormones and um, temperature ranges might be normal for one person and not normal for another. So it's a really interesting sort of piece of insight into where medicine is going, uh, i.e. now that we have all these really simple, easy tests that can tell us huge amounts about our genetics, uh, our microbiome and what's in our blood, then we actually might be able to um, develop a sort of a better resolution of a picture of what optimal health is and actually when someone actually falls out of bounds of that. Um, and I think that's that's going to be a really big 
you know, talking point from uh, this year and, uh, and onwards. Wow. So you said that the uh, one of the peaks was in April and I think it was because of pollen. I didn't realise that pollen had such an impact on the body, except for people who had hay fever. Yeah, this was... <laughs> This is something we we uh, actually went back to the researchers for more detail on. And it surprised them too, because they weren't able to tell us whether necessarily a, a, a significant proportion of their volunteers had hay fever, for example, and that might be causing this signal. Um, and it's something they're going to dig deeper into. But they sort of said it's, it's sort of reasonable to assume that if you're inhaling all these airborne particles and there's been a natural increase of them for as long as we can remember um that your body it's quite reasonable to assume that your body might want to mount a defense and perhaps in those of us uh where our immune systems are working properly we you know we don't notice it and for the for those of us who have overactive immune systems um you know it, it then shows up as hay fever so presumably this was um, a study done out in California and it was found they had the peaks in December and April. Um, so elsewhere in the world, I assume it's going to be different, those seasonal sort of uh, peaks? Yeah, I mean, so so the, they, they were very, um, very keen to stress that they just essentially found that there are two seasons in Californians, uh, particularly in the San Francisco Bay Area. But I think that's the next step is, you know, this took them four years of just continuous uh, measurements, but they do want to go to other countries and, you know, profile more and more people to understand what are the, what effectively are the, the boundaries beyond which we start to say, okay, this person is, you know, descending into poor health. Because at the moment we have very, um, you know, they're, they're just like single points. Okay, if your temperature's above 37, you're probably ill. If you're this level's below this, it's very ill. But if we can start to understand those fluctuations wherever you are in the world, then um, we can really start to help people before they get ill. So does that mean that they assume that there's going to be bigger variations between locations than between individual people? So that you can largely group people's people's you know levels of these of, of these things in their, in their blood by where they live. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> so this so this is really new stuff in a sense. It's just it's just sort of coming aboard that we have all these new tracking devices that we're able to capitalize on from you know fitness trackers, heart rate watches to all these tests I talked about before. And the, the honest answer is they really don't know. There's been some early results that show that the presence of certain genes fluctuate with seasons. Um, there was uh, certain, they were interested in certain hormone levels and those could just vary person to person more so than say area to area. But the, the honest answer is they just don't know. They just are very careful not to say, you know, all people have these two seasons when, you know, full well the seasonal differences in India with the monsoon season and the, the sort of summer season is very different to what we experience over here in the West. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Dan. So now let's move on. Uh, Jason, what are you going to tell us about? So my favourite news story of uh, this issue was was the tale of a daring rescue <laughs> of giraffes <laughs> in Kenya. So essentially this story began uh, back in 2011 when a group of eight Rothschilds giraffes we were in danger from poachers, so they were moved into a remote sort of peninsula area 
But recently, there's been a lot of heavy rainfall, like it's in, in Lake Baringo in Kenya. It's been a lot of heavy rainfall, and it basically turned the peninsula into an island and marooned these, these eight giraffes onto this small island. And, and so, obviously, they're, they're going to run out of food or whatever. So the Kenyan Wildlife Service and uh, the charity called Save Giraffes Now decided that it was, it was time to, uh, to stage a rescue of these giraffes. So what they did is they built uh, rafts, uh, these sort of big, I think they're made out of steel, sort of barge-like rafts. And um, they, their plan originally was just to coax the giraffes onto the rafts with sweet treats like mangoes and then uh, take them to safety in um, this newly established giraffe sanctuary, which is about six kilometres away, called Ruko Giraffe Sanctuary. But the giraffes were so nervous, because they're, they're not used to human contact or whatever, that they viewed the gamekeepers as predators. And they'd also, it had been quite a good year for acacia, so they were pretty full anyway, so they weren't hungry, so the mangoes <laughs> didn't work. <laughs> so they had to go to plan B, which is kind of using tranquilizers, which is kind of scary. Because um, obviously giraffes aren't in the habit of lying down. And in fact, if you do tranquilize a, a giraffe and it lies down, then you, you, you get all sorts of complications. Um, because obviously it's got such a long neck, the, the blood pressure is absolutely insane to get, in order to get the blood to the brain. So if, if they're on their side like this, then their blood pressure enormously drops and they can get uh, brain damage from this. And they can also choke on their own saliva. So the giraffes not ordinarily lie down when they sleep. Not on the, you know, not on their side. Oh right. Because the, their their uh, physiology, their anatomy doesn't allow them to do it. They're not designed for that purpose. So yeah, it's it's super dangerous, and they didn't really want to have to do this. But um, so basically, they they created a system of hoists. So they dart them, and then they'd hoist hoist them up. Wow. Um, and they put little hoods on them so that they they they. Um, couldn't see what was going on and they weren't distressed. And this worked so well, one of the, the uh, gamekeepers described them as they're walking on and off the rafts as behaving so well. It was like walking a puppy on a Sunday afternoon. Oh. <laughs> so I thought it was pretty cute. So it, it does feel, um, I can definitely relate to uh, a sense of being marooned on an island, uh, cut off from the rest of the world with food slowly running out. Uh, it seems quite a familiar yeah, I, think, I think we all kind of bit, right? <laughs> seems like a familiar scenario right now. Um, um, but um, so, 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 they, so they did they do, sorry, just to, to, get a, to get a proper picture of this. So they had this little raft yeah. and they were um, trapped on an island. And um, yeah. there's eight of them. So was it, was it a one by one or two by two yeah, type operation? So, so basically... At the moment, they've done two females called Pasaka and uh, Asiwa, but there are six left that they're currently um, moving now. Um, so yeah, they, they can only do one at a time because the, I mean, the, I don't know if maybe most people don't know, but there are nine subspecies of giraffe. So these are Rothschilds giraffes. There's also uh, West African, South African, Nubian, Cordofan, Angolan reticulated Maasai and Thornicrofts. And Rothschilds are they're whoppers of the giraffes world. They're like they could be six meters tall, weigh more than a thousand kilos. So, and also, um, if anybody's seen that David Attenborough documentary where the, the lion attacks the giraffe and it starts kicking at it, you don't want to 
you don't want to mess with an angry giraffe, basically. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they had to do it one by one. It was very sort of carefully thought out, carefully managed uh, uh, plan. I'm sure anyone who um, has tried to put a cat in a box to take it to the vet can understand the difficulty <laughs> they had getting the giraffe on the raft. <laughs> So are the remaining giraffes okay for the meantime at the moment? So it's not flooding so quickly that they need to get them off, you know, really quickly? Yeah, um, they're, they're literally, as we speak, they're doing it now. Because um, it's the, the sanctuary that they've got is about six kilometres away. But it's, it's great. It's like a big, um, something like 4,000 acre site that's, that's specially for them. So um, hopefully it will keep them away from poachers. Because uh, a lot of people... I think giraffes fly under the radar a little bit and they are critically endangered um, and they are poached. Like You wouldn't necessarily think it, but they're, sometimes they're poached for bushmeat, but that isn't quite as common because a lot of African cultures think that consuming giraffe meat gives you leprosy. So a lot of the time they'll kill the animal and they'll just take the tip of its tail off and, and leave the carcass to the vultures. And that's because it's... Um, it's used as, as, as a dowry, the tip of the tail. And it's very, you know, it's very sort of highly regarded amongst some cultures. Um, so that's one of the, you know, you wouldn't necessarily expect poachers to, to be hunting giraffes, but that's that's one of the reasons, unfortunately. There's only, especially Rothschilds, there's only, only a few of them left now. So they're, it's really important that, that these like eight animals are saved. Yeah, I've heard about that because you hear about lions and elephants and rhinos, you know how endangered they are, but it seems like giraffes just don't seem to get as much airtime as some of the other animals. Yeah, it's, it blows my mind, really. I don't know why that is. They sort of seem to me like they can look after themselves. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that isn't the case, I'm afraid. It's not only these guys, like the, the cordophans are, are critically endangered as well. Um I don't, I'm not sure about the numbers of those, but there aren't many of those either. Thank you very much, Jason. So, and um, finally, we've got Alice. What are you going to tell us about, Alice? Um, so this issue, I quite like the feature on um, how do we can beat pandemic burnout. Now, I think we all feel a bit sort of bored of the pandemic at the moment. <laughs> I know it's going on and it's awful, but... You know, it started off, you know, back in March, we thought we'd just be working at home for, you know, a few weeks. And you know, a couple of weeks turned into a couple of months and now it's coming up to a year since we've all been working from home. And while it's you know, important for us to be doing this to keep people safe, um, at the same time, it's been a whole new way of working and um, you're getting problems where your sort of home life's blurring with your work life. Maybe you're having to balance you know, your job with looking after children or homeschooling. Um, and you know, everyone's feeling, you know, a bit sort of burnt out. Um I mean, it isn't a new thing. You know, back in 2019, the World Health Organization it actually put burnout onto its international classification of diseases. So it recognised this. You know, people were feeling burnt out. They had a lot on their plates. You know, trying to juggling juggling a lot anyway. Um, but now, sort of this pandemic burnout, this pandemic fatigue, is sort of a whole new thing, really. Um, and so, you know, we all know how everyone feels, and we thought, let's do an article about how we can make people feel better about it. Um, so we sort of dug deep into it and tried to find out ways of making yourself feel better. Um, and even though everyone's probably a bit fed up with Zoom calls at the moment and, you know, chatting online, it's actually really important to maintain relationships. Um, 
in any way you can. So, you know, whether you meet your friends over a you know, Zoom chat or have a phone call um, with your colleagues as well, because they've done this research where they found that um, if you're feeling quite um, you're in pain sort of socially or you're not having a social interaction, it actually um, lights up the same areas of your brain as if you're in physical pain. Um, so, you know, physical pain is sort of the same as social pain in your brain. Um, so that rhymed quite a lot. There. <laughs> 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 so, um, it's, it's quite a serious, and, it's, it's a serious point, isn't it? That loneliness, we're beginning to understand even before this uh, happened to us all, uh, has some quite serious health uh, consequences. They found that um, because it's effectively, it, it's like being a, in a state of high stress all the time, and 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 the, the presence of those hormones can be quite damaging to your your organs over a prolonged period of time. So it's it's we're all fairly sick of video calls. Obviously, I'm in, enjoying seeing you guys, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, like the 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 importance of networks, I think, has has been huge. Yeah, exactly, and that sort of social connectedness, and you're feeling like someone's listening to you, or feeling like you've got friends or colleagues that you can be open with and talk to. Um, you know, that can you know, release oxytocin and those hormones that are good for your brain. If you feel you know sort of protected and um, looked after, and like you've got a social circle you can rely on. Um, so that was one thing we found that, you know, despite the fact you might be fed up with all these calls, then you know, it is really important to try and maintain those relationships. Um, and another thing, it's I know, I know everyone's sort of fed up as well with being told, you should exercise more, you should go out, you, get, you can have your exercise for a day, you know, and all of that. And it's really easy just to sit down and be like, nah, I can't be bothered. But you shouldn't feel bad <laughs> about yourself for that because actually um, they've done this research and they found that our brains are actually um, designed to make you kind of want to sit down. So if you're, <laughs> if you're sat there saying, oh, I feel really bad, I should go for a walk, but I kind of want to, you know, sit, then, you know, don't beat yourself up about it. Because um, they've done this research, it was out in Switzerland, um, this guy called uh, Boris Cheval. Um, he did this research where they got people to um, you know, control these figures on screen and try and make the figures do exercise or make the figures sit down. And they found that when you're trying to, if you're naturally a person who doesn't really like going out and doing a lot of exercise anyway, then your brain has to almost like work harder, even though you're like, yeah, I really do want to do more exercise. So when you're trying to make this figure do exercise on the um, on the screen, it's still just like, you know, your brain's like, nah, I don't want this, this is too hard. <laughs> <laughs> this is too difficult. Um so you, know, you shouldn't beat yourself up about it, but again, going for that bit of exercise, it can really help. It gets you, you know, out of the house a little bit, a bit of fresh air. And it's not saying you have to go run 10 miles or anything, just, you know, do whatever you enjoy, whether that's you're going for a walk or, you know, going for a cycle ride or something like that. So that can be really beneficial. So what have you guys been doing to sort of keep yourself feeling, feeling happy and, and comfortable over the last year? <laughs> um, I... I think over the uh, over the winter break, I certainly turned to hibernation, which is probably like <laughs> the opposite of the exercise advice. But there was logic to it. One, it, it felt good <laughs> just to catch up on sleep. <laughs> but um, but more so, I think um, sleep is obviously uh, one of the major factors when it comes to keeping you know, making sure that your immune system's in, in good working order. You know, not not that you can necessarily protect yourself from COVID this way, but um, definitely, you know, I think I've tried to sleep more 
uh, drink a bit less, which um, seems a bit hard in the current situation. But I think that too can keep your kind of uh, body in good order. And I think that's made me feel a little bit healthier and a little bit more more well. But I think I think the the other one is that there's a really interesting thing that we've all talked about is. Um, the sort of with with the sameness of our day to days, the sort of sense of time is just blurred into one. And I I think um, I did see uh, I can't I can't uh, I can't attribute it now, but I did see one researcher saying that that part of the importance of these these daily walks that everyone are telling you to go on um, is to sort of punctuate and. Um, stretch out your days so that it doesn't just turn into one long smear of you moving between your desk and your sofa. I did the real hipster thing um, and back at the beginning of March when we first all started working from home I made a sourdough starter <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and he's called Bob and he's still going. Still going. Still making wow. sourdough oh, bread. well done. I've not killed him off yet. So, um... <laughs> so um, has, has making bread, has that been your, your keeping yourself sane activity? Yeah, I did make quite a lot of bread and baking um, but I mean, I really like the outdoors anyway, so I know at the moment we're only allowed out once a day, but when we were allowed out more than that, then I was just going out as much as I could because I think as well, it's really important to get the vitamin D and the sunshine. I just feel so much better once I get some fresh air, even just tipping it down with rain and, you know, I just said, I'm going outside anyway, I need to. So. <laughs> <laughs> what have you been doing, Jason? Uh, I've been playing my guitar a lot more. Um, I don't know. This is my own personal theory. And a lot of people talk about meditation. I think playing an instrument has a similar effect. So I used to joke about it saying that you go into a jazz trance. <laughs> but you do, um, if, there's a certain point, uh, not necessarily if you're reading score, but if you're just sort of noodling around, yeah, I find it really relaxing. Mm. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that when I'm playing an instrument. If, if it gets to the point where I know a piece quite well, so I can play it without really thinking about it, I find that that is really good for just sort of emptying my mind of anything I'm, I'm worrying about. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw on my ancient psychology degree here. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> um, I, th- I, th- I think that's a known, um, uh, a known uh, phenomenon, which I think, if I'm right, uh, psychologists called flow, which they liken to a mindfulness state ah. when you, when you are, when you when you find your kind of groove in a task and time can just part time can flow really mm. go really slowly or go really fast but you kind of lose the, the one main feature is you lose track of time and uh come out the other side of it feeling very relaxed um and i think that's a quantifiable thing that they've they've seen um it's quite hard to put someone in a fmri machine these those big clunking giant machines that uh people describe as tubes and tell people to relax in them and see what it looks like. Um, <laughs> but I think they've seen it in, in um, at least in ECG scans that your uh, brainwaves start to, you know, look a little bit more rhythmic and relaxed and akin to meditation when you're in a sort of mindful task, like playing an instrument or could be making pottery or something like that. Playing Tetris as well was, uh, they didn't, didn't they say that playing Tetris, you can get into a flow state like that? Yeah, yeah I do I remember. Bet, yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, because I can't play an instrument. Um, 
So what other things could there be that get you into that flow sort of state? Um, does it just have to be something you enjoy then? Yeah, I think it, I think it, the qualities of it are is that it's it's sort of I don't as a journalist I could never imagine writing being like that. <laughs> but maybe for some it is, but I, it was always sort of um, painting. Uh, cooking, cooking can be like that to a degree. Um, I think, uh, interestingly, there is a, a slight trend for mindful cooking now. But again, I think I've, I think getting to the point where you have to serve up something gets a bit too stressful. But um, <laughs> I, I think anything sort of uh, sort of physical in that it you know hand eye coordination you know requires something from you and. Uh, you can also it is creative you know it doesn't doesn't necessarily matter so much when you get it wrong or you don't have any deadlines or impositions or any set time you need to do it within it's just you just do it for the joy of it okay great thank you very much so we'll wrap it up there thank you for listening to this episode of the science focus podcast the january issue of bbc science focus magazine is out now also in this issue, we explore the greatest mysteries of the universe. Dr. Michael Mosley shares his top tips for keeping your blood pressure on track. And as always, our panel of experts answer your questions. Of course, there's much more inside and on sciencefocus.com. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.